You're listening to the Galatians Spying Out Our Liberty in Christ series, preached by Pastor Dan Christians at Maple City Baptist Church in Chatham, Ontario. For more information about Maple City, please visit us online at maplecitybaptistchurch.com. Father, we thank you that you've allowed us to come before your presence today and praise you for who you are and how wonderful you are. And now, Lord, as we open your word, I pray that you would illuminate our hearts and our minds that your spirit would speak to us and would convict us and would show us truth. And Lord, would help us to respond to that truth the way we ought to. God, I thank you that you loved sinners so much that you sent Jesus to die on our behalf. Lord, I pray that you would be pleased with everything that is said and done this morning. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to be in Galatians chapter 4 in just a moment. I want to begin this morning just by reminding you what an incredible book it is that we hold in our hands. When we pick up our Bible to read it, we pick up the Word of God. And that's not just a name. It's not just the Word of God, just like it's the Bible. It, it is a description of what it is. It is God's Word for us. God spoke, and everything that we need to know about Him, everything we need to know about ourselves, everything we need to know about this life, and everything we need to know about eternal life is found in the pages of this book. Now, granted, it's not always everything we want to know. And there are questions that, that the Bible doesn't answer. But everything that we need to know, God has given to us. He's spoken it for us. And so we open up this morning, not just a, a regular book, not just a book that's got some you know, great sayings in it, a, a book that was written by God as a love letter for us. The Bible is necessary and it is sufficient. Those are two characteristics that we need to remember. We need the Word of God. It is sufficient for everything that we need to know about God and to know about eternal life. Martin Luther said this. He said, The soul can do without everything except the Word of God, without which none at all of its wants are provided for. Without the Word of God, we, the soul has nothing to cling to. That's why God gave it to us to speak to our spirits, to speak to our souls, so we could have a relationship with him. The Bible is not just necessary and sufficient, it's authoritative. R.C. Sproul said that it is fashionable in some academic circles to exercise scholarly criticism of the Bible. In doing so, scholars place themselves above the Bible and seek to correct it. Okay, so scholarly criticism is just higher criticism. It's, it's looking at the Bible and saying, this can't be there, this can't be true because it's supernatural, right? Well, you take the miracles out of the Bible, you take everything that you know, makes sense from a human perspective out of the Bible, and you're left with very little. And so he's saying that we, we, when we do that, we place ourselves above the Bible and we correct it. He goes on to say, if indeed the Bible is the word of God, nothing could be more arrogant to do. It is God who corrects us. We don't correct him. We do not stand over God, but under him. So as we get into the word this morning, I hope we understand that we do stand under the word. And if Martin Luther and R.C. Sproul are enough for you, the Apostle Paul said this. 2 Timothy 3.16, All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction in righteousness, that the man of God may be perfect, thoroughly furnished unto all good works. The Bible is everything we need so that we can be complete in him. 
You might ask, why do I start this way? Why, why start the sermon off this way? Well, because I think it's good to remind it, be reminded every once in a while of the priceless thing that we hold in our hands that we get the opportunity to, to study from this morning and then to go home and read and to apply to our lives. I think we need to rem- be reminded of that truth. I believe that the right view of scriptures drives us to study it and to understand it and to apply it even when it is a difficult passage, even when it's kind of hard to understand initially. Alistair Begg said, all scripture is equally inspired, but all scripture is not equally inspiring. And I know you've, you've been in the Word, and you've been reading it, and you've been like, I have no idea what just happened. I don't know what he's saying. I, I don't follow right now. Well, if we have a high view of scripture, if we, if we understand that the Bible's Word of God, it will drive us to try and understand and to get it. And the truth is, the first time through, you're not going to get most of it. You'll get enough to change you. You're not going to get all of it. And so the Bible is such a wonderful book, we get to go over it again and again, and every time see new things and learn new things. And I say that this morning because here we're in a passage of Scripture that, that John MacArthur called the most difficult passage of Scripture in the New Testament. I don't know if that's true, I think there's other passages that at least rival it, but it is a tough passage to get through. Paul is going to be using an allegory, and he's going to be taking some historical events and, and ascribing new meaning to them. And so it's not that easy for us to get through. So what I'm asking you to do this morning is to, to try and stay with me, to think with me, and I think we'll be able to hopefully get something from it by the end of it together. All right? The book of Galatians can be easily organized into three sections. So we have the, the first two chapters are the historical argument. Here Paul is establishing his authority as an apostle and the authority of the gospel that he brought them. So he's using historical events to establish that. Chapters 3 and 4 is his doctrinal argument. Now he goes to the Old Testament and he goes to logic and he goes to experience and he says, listen, justification by faith alone, it's true. Look at what the Word of God says. Look at your own experience. Okay, look at what, what actually makes sense. And so he, he gives a, an incredible argument, almost as though he's a lawyer making his case, proof after proof after proof that justification is by faith alone apart from the law. And then in chapters 5 and 6, he gets to the practical application. And as a preacher, that's the part I'm really, really excited about getting to. I feel like I've been given a similar message for a while, um, but it's good. These, the truth that he establishes in chapters 1 to 4 are the most important truths that we can ever speak of. And then verses, chapters 5 and 6, our application, our lives just flow from that truth. So the passage this morning is going to deal with Paul bringing a close to his doctrinal argument. And he's going to give an allegory of the Old Testament. Now, if I ask you this question, and an allegory, just so you know, is, is a hidden meaning to a, a story. So the story is either true, it's either nonfiction or it's fiction. And so an allegory is just describing a hidden meaning to that story. So if I ask you the question, should Christians allegorize the Old Testament, what is the answer? No, thank you. Good. I, I know that's kind of a scary question to answer because you say the wrong thing. The answer is, you're right, Judy, it's no. Okay? We don't have the right to take the historical happenings of the Old Testament and decide that we're going to ascribe our own spiritual meaning to them. Okay? Then we're just giving a new meaning to the Word of God that isn't necessarily there. And what happens is people do this, and then they come up with all sorts of crazy doctrines. And, and you ever wonder why there's so many different beliefs in Christendom? It's because we look at the Word of God the wrong way. And so when it is, 
when the Holy Spirit says, this is an allegory, we can learn something more from this, then we should say, okay, Holy Spirit, I saw that you inspired Paul to tell me that it's an allegory, and so then I can understand it that way. But in, in most cases, you don't have the right to just pick up the Word of God and make it mean whatever you want it to mean, to allegorize the Old Testament, okay? And, and on the same topic, should Christians allegorize their lives? Should we be always looking for hidden meanings in our lives? No. It's gonna, it'll drive you crazy if you do. And I think the truth is, sometimes we get caught up in this. It's kind of like we're looking for this like mysterious sign and then we're trying to find out everything that happened in our day to figure out if that's a sign, if there's a hidden meaning to that, that happening. Do you know what we need to do? We just need to get back to the Word of God and see what God clearly revealed to us and then follow that. Okay? You're going to drive yourself crazy if you're always looking for hidden meanings in, in everything that happened in your day. Okay? Follow what the Word of God says. Do what is very clear in Scripture. And you'll be all right. Okay? So, that being said, I'm going to do something very strange this morning. I'm going to ask you, as we read Scripture, to stand up. Okay, so if everybody would do this for me, I, I'm sorry, but I think it will be helpful for us to get this. Please stand up. All right. <clears throat> We're going to read Galatians chapter 4, verses 21 to 31. This is what I want you to do. I want you to sit down when you no longer understand what's happening. All right? All right? So just, just do that. And don't feel bad. Don't feel bad. Um, I, I actually had pastor come into my office earlier in the week, and I said, Pastor, I'm, I'm going to read to you the scripture I'm preaching from this Sunday morning. And I read it to him, and he, he laughed. He giggled. He said, what are you going to do with that? <laughs> and so um, we, we actually sat and talked about it for a while. It was, it was helpful. But um, this is, so just sit down when, you, when, you, when you're like, I'm not sure what he's saying at this point. Don't feel bad about it if you need to sit down. Okay? Verse 21, tell me, ye that desire to be under the law, do you not hear the law? For it is written that Abraham had two sons, the one by a bondwoman and the other by a free woman. But he who was of the bondwoman was born after the flesh, and he who was of the free woman was by promise. Which things are an allegory? For these are the two covenants, the one from Mount Sinai, which gendereth to bondage, which is Agar. For this Agar is Mount Sinai in Arabia, and answereth to Jerusalem, which now is, and is in bondage with her children. But Jerusalem, which is above, is free, which is the mother of all. For it is written, Rejoice, thou barren that bearest not, break forth and cry, thou that travailest not. For the desolate hath many more children than she which hath an husband. Now we, brethren, as Isaac was, are the children of promise. But as then he that was born after the flesh persecuted him that was born after the spirit, even so it is now. Nevertheless, what saith the scripture? Cast out the bondwoman and her son, for the son of the bondwoman shall not be heir with the son of the free woman. So then, brethren, we are not children of the bondwoman, but of free. I was kind of hoping you'd just stay standing, because I was going <laughs> to... If you know what's going on, feel free. Help me out. No, I, I, I do know that there, there are believers in this church, that they know their Bible well and they've studied it. And so they, they know what this passage is talking about. But the truth is, when we first read through it, I think we all go, what? What is, what is he talking about? What is this allegory supposed to mean? And, and why is he, you know, attaching Hagar with Mount Sinai and with 
the Jerusalem that is below, and, and what is all going on here? And so I, I did that because I think as we go through this, it'll be exciting for us to say, let's get in, let's study a little bit, and then let's see what the Word of God has, is teaching us here. Um, this may help you as we go through. As, as we go through this in more detail, there will be two mothers, Sarah and Hagar, two sons, Isaac and Ishmael, two covenants, the covenant of promise and the covenant of the law or the covenant of the flesh, two Jerusalems, the Jerusalem that is above and the Jerusalem that is below, and ultimately two types of people in the world, those who are free and those who are in bondage. Okay, so we, we see these, and, and you'll find that in all of those cases, it's teaching the same truth. And so when we say there's two mothers, Sarah and Hagar, well, Sarah is the mother of Isaac, and so there's two sons, Isaac, and Hagar is the mother of Ishmael, and so there's, there's two sons, right? And so as we go through, we're going to see that Hagar, Ishmael, the covenant of the law, the Jerusalem that is below, and those in bondage are all connected. And we'll find that Sarah and Isaac and the covenant of promise and the Jerusalem that is above and those who are free are all connected. Okay, so as we go through this, keep that in mind. I hope that will help. Verse 21. Tell me, ye that desire to be under the law, do you not hear the law? Okay, those of you who say that you're going to keep the law and that the law is going to bring you into heaven somehow, don't you even hear what the law itself says? Now, he's, they're referring to the, the commandments of God. He's saying, look at the whole law. Look at the, the Torah, the first five books of the Bible. Look at that and, and tell me that you still say, after understanding that, that you think you're going to be saved by the law. Well, what does he mean? Verse 22 says, For it is written that Abraham had two sons, the one by a bondwoman, the other by a free woman. Or the one by a slave, the other by a free woman. But he who was of the bondwoman was born after the flesh. Okay, that's, that's Ishmael, born after the flesh. But he of the free woman was by promise. Okay? So here we have two mothers. And the title of the sermon this morning is, Who's Your Mama? Okay, there's... There's two mothers. And he's making this really important point. He's going to make a delineage here between those who are children of promise and those who are children of the flesh and then what that results in ultimately. And so he's using this story that, that is a historical event that happened in the Old Testament that's going to help us illustrate this wonderful truth that God has given us a promise and we can be saved through the promise and that we'll never be saved by our own flesh. So if you would turn your Bibles back to, to Galatians, sorry, Genesis chapter 15. Genesis chapter 15, verses 1 to 6. So this is God giving the promise to Abraham. It says, After these things, the word of the Lord came unto Abraham in a vision, saying, Fear not, Abraham, I am thy shield and thy exceeding great reward. And Abraham said, Lord God, what wilt thou give me, seeing I go childless, and the steward of my house is Eliezer of Damascus? And Abraham said, Behold, to me thou hast given no seed, and lo, one born of my house is mine heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, saying, This shall not be thine heir, but he that shall come forth out of thine own bowels shall be thine heir. And he brought him forth abroad and said, Look now towards heaven. And tell the stars, if thou be able to number them. And he said unto him, so shall thy seed be. 
And he believed in the Lord, and it was counted unto him for righteousness. So God comes to Abram and says, Abram, I'm going to give you a promise. The promise is that you will have a seed. You will have a son of your own. And ultimately, that, that son will outnumber the stars. Your seed will outnumber the stars. And so it's an incredible promise, a supernatural promise, one that could not happen by Abraham himself. Chapter 16, verses 1 to 4 says, Now Sarah, Abraham's wife, bare him no children. And she had a handmaid, an Egyptian, whose name was Hagar. And Sarah said unto Abraham, Behold, now the Lord hath restrained me from bearing. I pray thee, go into thy maid, that it may be that I may obtain children by her. And Abraham hearkened to the voice of Sarah. And Sarah, Abraham's wife, took Hagar, her handmaid, the Egyptian, after Abraham had dwelt ten years in the land of Canaan, and gave her to her husband, Abraham, to be his wife. And he went in unto Hagar, and she conceived and when she saw that she had conceived, her mistress was despised in her eyes. And so God gives this promise to them, but they're not really sure it's going to come to pass without their help. And so Sarah says, Abraham, I'm, I'm past childbearing years. I'm not going to have a child. And, and so maybe the best thing for you to do is just go in into my handmaid. And so here's Hagar. Take her to be your wife. And so Abraham does, and she gets pregnant. This represents God's desire or God's plan, but done man's way. Okay, so here you have, I mean, the, the ultimate goal was for Abraham to have a son, right? That was the promise. But Abraham decides he's going to do it his own way, or Sarah decides that Abraham should do it his own way. And so it's not God's way. It's not God's promise. It's not anything supernatural. It's just man's way of getting to God's end. Okay? Chapter 17, verses 15 to 19. And, and by the way, just so you know, that, that scenario, it did not work out well for that family. Okay? It, they really had a lot of dysfunction. Um, Sarah hated her handmaid until finally she kicked her out and left her, left her and her son on her own. Okay? So it did not go well. Not a good idea. Chapter 17, verses 15 and 19 says, And God said unto Abraham, As for Sarah thy wife, thou shalt not call her name Sarai, but Sarah shall be her name. And I will bless her and give thee a son of her also. Yea, I will bless her, and she shall be the mother of nations. Kings of people shall be of her. Then Abraham fell on his face and laughed and said in his heart, Shall a child be born unto him that is a hundred years old? And shall Sarah, that is 90 years old, bear? And Abraham said unto God, Oh, that Ishmael might live before thee. See what, see what Abraham's doing? He's saying, God, this is impossible. Please just accept my way. Just accept Ishmael. Okay? Because it's just not going to happen. Verse 19, And God said, Sarah, thy wife, shall bear thee a son indeed, and thou shalt call his name Isaac, and I will establish my covenant with him for an everlasting covenant, and with his seed after him. There will be a covenant, and it will come from your son. Sarah, your wife, will bear a son. Isaac, covenant will go through him. And so ultimately, in chapter 21, verses 1 and 2, we see God's promise come to fruition. And the Lord visited Sarah as he had said, as he had promised. And the Lord did unto Sarah as he had spoken. 
For Sarah conceived and bare Abraham a son in his old age, at the set time of which God had spoken unto him. Everything that God said would happen, happened. The promise came true. And so now Paul takes this story that, that is fairly well known in the Old Testament and helps us to understand this truth that he's been arguing for all along. And the important thing he wants them to understand is that it's not important who your father is, it's important who your mother is. What I mean by that is the Jews would constantly go back and they would say, but Abraham's our father, but Abraham's our father. Okay? And so it was almost like they were, they were untouchable because you know, they knew they were a part of God's plan because Abraham was their father. And what he's trying to say is, okay, yes, Abraham needs to be your father, but there's two ways of coming to God and getting to the end. One way is through your flesh. It is your way. It is the way through the mother, Hagar, the bondwoman. The other way is through the free woman, through God's promise, through Isaac. And so when we try and come to God on our own terms, when we try and say, oh yes, God, no, I I get Christianity, I get what Christ did, I'm going to add him to my version of how salvation works, we're doing it our own way. We're doing it the fleshly way. And sometimes we think we're doing a good thing, right? It's like, oh no, God, I know you just said it's the promise. I know you said it's just Jesus, but I'm going to add my good works to it because I think you'll be pleased with those as well. When we, but as soon as we do that, we undermine the promise. Because the promise was, it'll be supernatural. It'll be through the Spirit. It'll be through some event that is beyond your control. It's something that's completely beyond the natural. And so this story is being used as a great allegory. Um, Romans chapter 9, verses 7, and, 7 to 9 say this. Neither because they are the seed of Abraham are they all children. You get that? Just because you're a descendant, just because you bear the name of Abraham, just because you bear the name or you consider yourself a Christian, doesn't mean you're a child. But in Isaac shall thy seed be called. That is, they which are children of the flesh, these are not children of God. But the children of promise are counted for seed. For this is the word of promise, at this time will I come and Sarah shall have a son. So the difference between Abraham's sons, they had different mothers, one was free, one was a slave. And they had different natures of their birth. One was born naturally, was born as a slave. The other was born supernaturally. It was, it was a miracle, born by the Spirit, and they were free. Verse 24, which things are an allegory. For these are the two covenants. Okay, word covenant, the two promises, the two testaments, okay, Old Testament, New Testament, the two covenants. The one from Mount Sinai. Okay, what, can't, what happened at Mount Sinai? The law was given. At Mount Sinai, the law is given. And so the one is from Mount Sinai. The one is of the law, of the flesh, which gendereth, or with, which gives birth to bondage, which is Hagar. Okay? So the law gives birth to bondage. And isn't that what Paul has been arguing for all the way along? He's been always saying that when you try and fulfill the law to get yourself to God, you're going to find yourself condemned. Because none of us can keep the law. None of us are good enough. None of us are morally excellent. We all fall short of God's law. None of us are holy. And so what he says here is that 
when, when you go the route of the law, you, you become bound. You become condemned. You are not free. This is Hagar's way. Verse 25, For this Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia, and answereth to Jerusalem, which now is, and is in bondage with her children. Another kind of confusing verse, but um, Hagar in Mount Sinai is in Arabia. It's outside of the promised land. And it answers to Jerusalem, which now is, and is in bondage with her children. And what he's doing now is he's giving this commentary on what he believes the state of Israel was at this point. Okay, so what he's saying is, Israel has gone from you need to trust God, you need to, to love God, you, you keep the law, but the law points you to a, a coming redeemer. It says, the problem with Israel, the problem with Jerusalem that is below, the Jerusalem on earth now, is that they're bound to the law, but they don't have a heart for God. They don't trust, they don't have faith. And when you look at how Jesus dealt with the Pharisees, the religious leaders of the day, that's exactly what you see. You, you see him saying, you tithe of mint and cummus and annan, but you've forgotten the weightier matters of the law, judgment, mercy, and faith. What he's saying is you got the outside right, you're keeping the out externals okay, but there's nothing going on inside your heart. And this was his, his problem with Israel all the way along. And so the Jerusalem that is below at this time represents this man getting themselves to God man's way, through the flesh, through the law. And what he's saying is it falls short. It results in bondage. Verse 26, but Jerusalem, which is above, is free, which is the mother of us all. And here he's speaking of the heavenly Jerusalem. And in Revelation chapter 21, it describes the new Jerusalem. And it's um, in the Old Testament, when you see the saints in Hebrews chapter 11, the Bible says that they're seeking for a city that is a heavenly city. Okay? Their, their citizenship, they're not so worried about the externals here on earth and, and just being bound to this law. They know they're citizens of heaven. They're children of God, children of the promise. And that's the Jerusalem that's above. That's what he's speaking about, the free. Verse 27, for it is written, and this verse is, uh, I had trouble with this one. For it is written, rejoice thou barren that bearest not, break forth and cry thou that travailest not, for the desolate hath many more children than she which hath an husband. And there are a couple different ways of understanding this. He's quoting from Isaiah chapter 54 verse 1. And it is probably speaking about the barren that beareth not is Sarah, and that, that eventually you'd have many, many more children, that there'd be more. But it, it really is a tough verse, because it could be speaking about Israel and the Gentiles. There's a couple ways of looking at verse 27. So let's go to verse 28. Now we, brethren, as Isaac was, are the children of promise. And so he looks at them straight in the eye, he says, listen, guys, we're children of the promise. But as then he that was born after the flesh persecuted him that was born after the spirit, even so it is now. Don't be surprised when you have religious people persecuting children of the promise, persecuting true believers. Okay, that's what's happening there. What's happening is there are these Judaizers who are coming into to this church and they're trying to bring all of these people who are children of the promise back under the law. Said, so don't, don't be surprised when that happens. There will always be false teachers who will try and get you to back under the law. Try and make you follow their standards, their rules, their regulations. Try and make you think that there's something that, they, that you can do to get yourself to God. Don't be surprised when that happens. It's going to happen. 
It's always happened. Verse 30, nevertheless, what saith the Scripture? Okay, and, and that, that's a great phrase to keep in your mind all the time. Whatever situation you're coming against, whatever problem you're experiencing, what does the Scripture say? Okay, the, here's a problem. There's these people who, who think it's by the law. There's these other people who are saying, no, it's by promise. Um, what does the Bible say? We need to go to God all the time to his word. The Bible says, cast out the bondwoman and her son, for the son of the bondwoman shall not be heir with the son of the free woman. Get, get rid of that false teacher. Get rid of that lie. Cast them out. So then, brethren, we are not children of the bondwoman, but of the free. We're free. Why would we ever become a child of somebody who is in slavery? Why would we put ourselves under that slavery again when we've, when we've been freed? It doesn't make any sense. So here Paul has provided for us an allegory, and I hope as we've gone through it, some of it makes a little bit more sense. But he's illustrating this powerful truth that justification is by faith in the promise of God alone. The law cannot save. It was never meant to save. The only thing that the law ever does is help us to see our need of a Savior. It helps us to see we're condemned. And so justification, becoming right with God, having a right standing before God, is by faith in the promise of God alone. Every belief system can be categorized into one of these two covenants. There's either the belief system that says, you can do it. If you do, and then we'll have a different set of rules for every belief system, but if you do these things, you will get yourself to God. It's man's way. It's the way of the flesh. It's the way of the law. It's, it's, the, it's the covenant of the law. And the second belief system that is unique only to Christianity is the covenant of promise. Where God says, I know you can't do it. You will never get yourself to me. And so I'm going to make a covenant with you where I will save you and you don't have to do anything. There is absolutely nothing you can do to contribute to this covenant. You have no part. Remember when, when Abraham set up the animals and he cut all those animals in half and he put one on each side and, and it was symbolic of two people walking through a covenant and there was this promise that was going to be made and so he, he splits all of these animals in half and then God puts them to sleep, or he puts them on the ground, and God walks through it himself. The, the picture is, this is a covenant where it's just me, not you. That's unique to Christianity, where it says you can't do anything. God came down, he saved you. The only part that you play in this is to put your faith and trust in him. To, to believe, to, to accept the incredible promise. Do you know that this truth, what, what the Bible's saying here, it goes against what our flesh wants to do. It goes against everything that's natural in us. When I say that any person can be a part of the kingdom of God, no matter what they do, we just, our flesh goes against that. We, we don't like that idea. Now, listen, when you become a child of the promise, you become a child of God. You have the responsibility to reflect who you are now. And so we don't expect children of the promise to say, yeah, I'm free, I'm going to do whatever I want, I'm going to break all the laws. That would be silly, that would be foolish, it would be ridiculous. Why would God save you so that you can break his laws? 
That's, that's not the plan. But we need to separate these things. Do I do good works to, to get myself to God, to earn salvation, or do I do good works to please God because I love him? Am I motivated by self-preservation or am I motivated by love for God? We need to get back to that. We should be so amazed that God would make this covenant with us, this covenant of promise, that he would send his son to die in our place, that from this point on, we just, we want to live for him. We want to please him. We want to love him. We want to do everything we can to make him happy. If I was in any kind of relationship and I didn't live to please that person, if I was in a relationship with my wife, Tara, wonderful wife, if I was in that relationship and I did everything I could against him, there's, there's no relationship there against Tara. I mean, if I you know, said, babe, I love you, but I'm going to you know, do all these things that I know you hate, it wouldn't make any sense, right? And so, so what do we do now that we're saved as believers? We say, I've accepted the promise. I've accepted your invitation to be your bride, to be your child. And now I live for you. Now I live to please you. That's what the Christian life is about. The veneer of Christianity does not make you a child of the promise. And so just because you have some veneer of religion, just because you're in church, just because even you've been baptized, you know, you've done sacraments, you've, you've done religious things, none of those things make you a child of the promise. That's the whole point of this argument. Because the Jews' constant cry was that we are Abraham's children. We're religious And he says, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter that you're religious. It matters who's your mother. Are you a child of promise or are you a child of the law? Are you a child of the flesh? One represents God's way. One represents man's way. And they don't lead to the same place. We're foolish if we think that we're going to get to God our own way when God has provided his son for us to come to him. So don't be foolish. Trust Christ. See, the Jews would understand that Ishmael represented the Gentiles. And Paul says, nope. Ishmael is not the Gentiles. Ishmael represents any of you Jews who think you can come to God through the law. That's who Ishmael represents. And can I tell you today, there are children of Isaac and there are children of Israel, or of Israel, of Ishmael, in this room. There are those who come to God on his terms through the promise, and there are those who are trying to come to God on their own terms. So we need to make sure we are children of Isaac. You are only a child of the promise if you've experienced a supernatural birth by the Spirit of God through faith. Isn't what Jesus said to Nicodemus? You must be born again. I mean, the, the term born again is kind of a weird term, but... Really, I mean, there are so many people that would, they would claim the name of Christ. They'd say, I'm a Christian. Do you think you're a Christian just because you believe Jesus existed at some point? Do you think Christianity is just about, yeah, Jesus was a good guy. I can, I, you know, if he was around, I'd shake his hand. I, I, I would like him. That's not it at all. Christianity is about understanding what he did on the cross, that he died for sin, and then personally accepting that for yourself accepting his payment for you, understanding that you're a sinner in need of what he did, a savior, and then asking him to save you, repenting of your sin, putting your faith and trust in him. That is what it's all about. And so 
listen, unless you experience that new birth, unless the Holy Spirit resides in your heart, you're not a Christian. Even if you think you are, you must be a child of the promise. You must be born again. You need to know who your mother is. We all need to know that. And this is, this is the time of our service for a little bit of self-examination. What are you trusting, really? I mean, I know you probably know the right answer. But have you put all of your faith and trust in Jesus Christ to save you? Is he, is he everything? Is he your only hope? Or are you clinging to the idea that somehow your good works and somehow your kindness and somehow your niceness and somehow your religion will have something to do with you being saved? Because if you're clinging to that notion, you're a child of Ishmael. We need to know who our mother is. And finally, when you know that you're a child of the promise, you should live like you're free. Live like you're free. You're now free to serve the God of the universe, to, to glorify that God, to love that God, to spend your days in his service. I mean, this is an incredible opportunity, incredible privilege that we have as free people. It's not free to do whatever you want all the time. It's free to do what you were designed to do, bring glory to God. And so let's live as children of the Most High God in, in every area. Let's, let's resemble our Father. Let's reflect his love to the world. Let's pray. Father, Lord, I'm, I'm grateful that you you provided a way for us when there was absolutely no way in ourselves. Lord, that you saw that we were sinners, that we were righteously condemned by your perfect law, that we fell short, Lord, and that you sent a Savior for us. You sent a rescuer. You sent Christ to die on the cross to, to keep the law perfectly and then allowed us to put our faith and trust in what he's done to be saved, to be justified. God, as we wrap up this doctrinal section of the book of Galatians, when he's, Paul's arguing for justification by faith apart from the law. Help us to keep in mind, God, that um, this is not just some theoretical doctrine, something that we should understand. This is something we need to apply to our lives, God. If there's anybody that's here today and they don't know they're a child of the promise, they don't know they're saved, I pray, God, that they would take care of that even before the service ends today. God, for those of us who know that we're your children, Help us to live like it. Help us to reflect your love and to be grateful for what you've done and to just to live in that gratitude. Thank you, God, for saving wicked and vile sinners like us. I pray that you give us the strength and courage to glorify and please you this week. In Jesus' name.